Welcome to Anthropologenings podcast, Monographic Happy Hour. These episodes are based on the recordings of the Monographic Happy Hour events, which the Anthropological Association of Denmark co-hosts with the Department of Anthropology at Copenhagen University. The aim of the event is to honor the classic anthropological genre, the monograph. So if you are not able to attend the event or if you missed a detail, we're glad to take you back for an interesting afternoon in the name of anthropology. In this episode, you will meet Ladebuk Siegel, associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at Copenhagen University, who presents her first monograph launched in 2016 and called No Place for Grief, Martyrs, Prisoners and Mourning in Contemporary Palestine. Critical comments and questions are given by Associate Professor in the Department of Cross-Cultural and Regional Studies at Copenhagen University, Thomas Brulhon. The event was chaired by Atrai Sen, Associate Professor in the Department of Anthropology at Copenhagen University, who here welcomes both audiences and key speakers. So please join us in the exploration of Lada's monograph, No Place for Grief. Enjoy. Okay. Shall I take some action? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Okay, this is it. Okay, hello everyone. Uh, on behalf of the <coughs> Danish Society of Social Anthropologists, and I'm, I've told everyone that I'm not going to try to pronounce it in Danish because the, it, the only grief here is Lada's grief. <laughs> uh, and uh, I wanted to welcome you to the monographic happy hour. Today we are starring Lada Buxegal, a wonderful colleague from our Department of Anthropology. And uh, co-starring, we have Thomas Burham, from who's associate professor in, uh, in Tours. And... Um, I just wanted to welcome both of you. So uh, Lada's book, which is called uh, No Place for Grief, Martyrs, Prisoners and Mourning in Contemporary Palestine, uh, it takes a little different perspective on everyday life in Palestine while our sort of our sensory uh, mechanisms over the last few years and more recently over the last few decades uh, has been uh, inundated with images of war and violence and, uh, and deaths of children. <coughs> Uh, Lada actually takes a look at the everyday life behind those dramatic images, behind that kind of mass atrocities and mass killings. What is the everyday life? And she takes the perspective of uh, women and women's experiences, and uh, especially women who are uh, associated with the families of uh, detainees who are involved in the resistance movement, or uh, women who are the widows of martyrs. Um, And what is their understanding of endurance, grief, loss, and mourning? Lotta's book, which uh, has been endorsed by uh, some very important and critical scholars in her field, has been described as simply breathtaking. On that note, um, I'm going to hand over to Lotta and Thomas. Take it away. Thank you so much, and thank you to all of you for coming here today. Yeah, someone I know wrote in a book that thinking is thanking, and that is also very much my mode of being a scholar. Um, I'm obliged to all the people I've discussed anything at any point in time with concerning that book here. I never came to Palestine as a political activist, as it is custom for scholars of Palestine to do. And which is perhaps also quite clear in the genre of writing the book uh, that is the result of that work. I came as a very young or semi-young intern at the then, and here's that group, uh, Research and Rehabilitation Center for Torture Victims back in 2004 
in order to learn what were the possibilities for treating victims of trauma in uh, the Gaza Strip. So when I naively stood there uh, with a Palestinian psychologist in the heat in front of a family who stayed in a tent because they had just had their entire family home demolished uh, in the name of Israeli security concerns. And I asked, so how do you work with post-traumatic stress disorder? He looked at me dryly and said, there's no post in Gaza. And so that was, a, in a very few words, my clue to do my PhD, but also my postdoc studies. And here's the thing, the lives that I encountered in Palestine they were, in fact, not spectacular, even though they are extraordinary to many spectators. They were simply very ordinary people in Palestine, at least. And it is this ordinariness of a particular set of oppressive circumstances that I've tried to capture with my studies and ultimately this book. And this is perhaps also the reason that I, and some would say stubbornly, uh, did not pick a spectacular or an eventful approach that focused on the big stories, the dramas or the traumas. Rather, I wanted to ask what kind of ordinary life was made possible in the wake of spectacular events, traumas and political turmoil. And this is also why the people I came to focus on were the wives of the so-called Palestinian prisoners. I came to Palestine with an idea and it sounds awful, I admit that, that women were invisible in Palestine. And quite naturally, and as Palestinian feminists very, very quickly made sure to correct me, this was wrong. Palestine, in fact, has a very long and very quite distinct and impressive uh, grounded feminist tradition. Yet even so, there's quite a strong gendered normativity there and I knew from my short stay and studies in Gaza uh, that victimhood and political violence registered and were expressed differently by respectively women and, and men. So on that note, I asked the Palestinian NGO that serviced survivors of torture if I could do fieldwork among them and their clients. And they agreed, which was lucky for me. Uh, they also taught me fairly quickly that the notion of a survivor of torture was not really anything they used, only when the Danish funders pace, were in the room. Because in Palestine, you don't talk about survivors of torture, because everything is torture in Palestine. The checkpoint, uh, the oppression, the laws, everyday life. You talk about political prisoners. And the second you say prison, you also say torture. So that's when I sort of entered the language of prison studies I learned. So as I also write in the book, when I told the people in the NGO what I was after, generally caregivers, people who were related to the political prisoners, they all said to me, oh, let us take you to the mother of the martyrs. They're really traumatized. Or the widows. And when I said, okay, so what about the, the wives of the prisoners? Could I meet them? They would shrug their shoulder and say, no, no. Do you want to, to meet one of the Hamas widows from the Tel Aviv bombings? Yeah? 
And in that way, their shrug of the shoulder became my invitation to find out why did they not care? Why were these women not important enough, not worthy enough of the attention of a foreign scholar? So you could say that I encountered Palestine through trauma, but also hoped to come up with a language that didn't rely on the term, and trauma that is, as a vehicle for anthropological analysis. And that is also why the field of trauma studies is very much the analytical context rather than, say, a historical or a politically one. And so Thomas, being one of Denmark's most accomplished scholars and thinkers in the humanities about trauma, emotions and Holocaust studies, I could not have wished for a better discussant to be in conversation with about that which to me is the gist of the book. So here's to a conversation that is very interdisciplinary. So what kind of book is this? Is it the one I hope to write? No, not quite. But I think that is partly because this was my first shot at writing a book uh, and trying to prove that, yeah, I'm an anthropologist and it's about trying to find my voice. I don't think I accomplished either. At least next time, I hope to come out of the closet as a scholar. And I've come to realize, and Tina Gammeltoft helped me very much to see this clearly, that I have felt that because I wrote about something that's so intrinsically political, I've had to censor every single of my words because of that context of poisonous uh, affect and politics that is adjacent to scholarship on Palestine. And even though, or at least in that context, I hope to be able to point to the insights uh, that, may, that might have had a bigger place in the book had I been more brave. But I want to flag three points that are what concerns me most, I think, in the book. And to go to these three points I want to talk about now before Thomas takes over, uh, let me just quote one of my inspirations in the book, uh, a thinker called Wittgenstein. And he has said that to speak hesitantly is not to hesitate. And I like that. I think it fits. So if anyone say, what is this book about? Lotte? I'm going to say it is about endurance and exhaustion. Uh, in particular, how the two are braided. Because they are in Palestine. It is very much about the way in which exhaustion with a political project registers in kin relationships in Palestine and among Palestinians. Some of the more provoked responses to the book have been, how can you really say that people are done with politics? And to be sure, I'm not saying that. In an article I wrote in a special issue, I, uh, I quote a Palestinian anthropologist called Lina Meari, who has worked on uh, torture and prisoners in Palestine. And she has argued that Palestinians breathe politics. And my response to that is to say, yes, they do. They breathe in suffocation at the same time as they breathe. And I think that quite captures the sometimes strangulating feeling that this politics can be lived like as, a, um, as the families to the, to the prisoners. And so, to be sure, politics is indeed the primary mode of subjectification that unites the Palestinian. Yet this does not mean that every single nook and cranny of Palestinian subjectivity has been sort of 
rolled over or as fully subjectivized by uh, the politics of the political struggle. And I think this is perhaps uh, why the book is about the modes uh, in which other forms of feeling and being with the political project of the Palestinians that do not have a home in the language of the political struggle. And this takes me to the second point, which is a notion, and it's called the standing language. And this is um, a notion that I've also learned or taken from Wittgenstein, discussed with Marc Vachier and read about in Stanley Cavell. Um, and the standing language, very briefly and also abruptly, means the way in which a particular form of life gives voice, receives and acknowledges and come to know the experiences that the members in a form of life have. And in the context of my work, this means that there was and is an overarching way of accommodating experiences of loss, grief and difficult emotions, which are all subsumed under the notion of sumut, which means to endure and to persevere in the face of hardship. A key point is in the book that sumut is not a home to the kind of emotions that the wives of the prisoners have. And these are emotions of longing, of loss and desire. It's feelings <coughs> that are not made up or annulled by uh, the sacrifices they make by enduring these feelings for the sake of the Palestinian homeland. My hope for a title for the book was something like Between Voice and Void, but the editor hated it. Um, it wouldn't sell any books because in fact, I'm not much of a spatial thinker. So to say no place for grief doesn't really gel with me. But nonetheless, uh, no place for grief does perhaps capture that feelings that cannot be subsumed by the political struggle are not exactly welcome in Palestine. And a significant point here is that I do not locate the failure of language in the experience, in the subject, or in the individual body. To me, uh, the failure to receive these feelings, these unwanted feelings of loss, of doubt, um, they reside in the texture of the social, in the form of life in which they are part, but in which the emotional expressions are not welcome. And I think this is trying to dislocate, trying to look at precisely the social world rather than say, oh, this is about individual women, because I don't think it is, in fact, or maybe it is. Yeah, and so enduring and being exhausted is simply, I would say, part of the ordinary and it is part of how ordinary life is spoken about in Palestine. Thomas writes in his book that uh, the combination of anger and powerlessness equals resignation. And I have often wondered in Palestine what the difference between endurance and resignation is. And I'm not sure that I know, and I'm not sure either that the people I studied, that they always know. But I think they go hand in hand and pop up different situations um, over time. So I'm going to tell you what kind of politics this book is about. Because to some, this book over there is distinctly an 
disturbingly unpolitical. Yet to me, it is in fact not. Uh, and this is due to the notion of politics that I work with. <coughs> and not only is this a politics, it's perhaps even more so an ethics. And I found a way to allow the two of them to be braided together. But that didn't occur to me, in a sense, until after I had written this book uh, and until after conversations. Because when I wrote the book, uh, it was when the whole rush of the ethical turn in anthropology was sort of over us, everywhere. And uh, it overwhelmed anthropology. And I think I was also trying to find my feet in it. Uh, and I read a lot of it. And, but I wasn't clear precisely where I was, apart from the fact that it was the notion of ordinary ethics that appealed to me. And that is perhaps because it's an understanding of ethics, where ethic is not a moral code up here that I'm constantly trying to reach or try to live up to. It's not the image I want to be. It's in the little gestures, gestures that people do in everyday life, say, like me, making someone aware of their, that they're about to fall into a lake or trip over a chair or, not, or choose not to do it. And it's also about the failures that people do when they try to do these. So it's again, it's all these very ordinary, not very exceptional forms of ethics that I think my book is very much about. It is ordinary and you wouldn't notice if you're not attuned to it. And this, I have since then learned, uh, is a way of thinking about ethics that has a home in what is called an ethics of care. It has been big in nursing studies and obviously in feminist studies uh, way back. Um, yet quite recently it has also been conceptualized by a French thinker, a French philosopher called Sandra Logier. And she argues that an ethics of care is both a practical response, say, in me trying to uh, hinder that someone falls into a, a lake. And it's also, um, it's also an attention to that which matters. So in order to try to conclude, I, this is obviously a statement to say that this book matters. Does this mean saying that politics in Palestine do not matter? that it's not important to write books about the big picture of politics in Palestine. Obviously, it's not, but it is um, a way of saying that to the people I studied uh, and among whom I did fieldwork, politics mattered, but not in an engulfing manner. And perhaps this is because they did not matter to politics. And I think this is also where No Place for Grief as a book could be read as a practical response to the fact that the wives of the prisoners were deemed insignificant and unimportant, both by the therapists and also by uh, the politicians in Palestine. But to me, their lives were not. And showing what mattered to them in their everyday lives was part of my response. So perhaps the book is one way to do ordinary politics through an ethics of care. 
You tell me. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a wonderful book. It's a book from which I learned a lot. And it is a book, I think, where there is certainly a voice. It's not a voice that shouts you in the face. It's rather a voice that speaks softly and a voice that maybe sometimes whispers. But uh, it makes me think of uh, Søren Kierkegaard, who once wrote that if you, are, if you want to show another person the way, if you want to show someone without tyrannically imposing upon him or her, you should stand next to him, not in front of him, but next to him and whisper him or her in his or her ear as they go by, allowing them to go their own way. And I think you do that. <laughs> and uh, you do it very nicely. I will begin being the narcissistic reader, uh, <laughs> relating your work <laughs> to my own. <laughs> And, and then try raise some questions that are not about me. We'll see whether I succeed. <laughs> uh, to begin with, I thought, well, I, I said yes to read this book, in part because it was about something very different. I spent 10 years in Holocaust and genocide studies. I've traveled repeatedly to Israel. I know a lot about Jew, Jews, Jewish existence post-Holocaust, little, too little about Palestinians. So I thought, this is a chance. This is exactly something different. Uh, it's about Palestine, and also my work has been about Rwanda, uh, post-war Germany, South Africa, so I would go to another place. It would be about the intimate and rela relational webs of women versus my, my single man, Jean-Marie, <laughs> standing there alone, alone pointing his finger at the fellow Germans. If it were about mothers and daughters and sisters and kin, neighbors, versus this guy shouting in the South German radio station. And it would be about accounting for suffering rather than accounting for resistance. It's a work by an anthropologist, an anthropologist, by the way, who begins her speech now citing Heidegger. <laughs> Denken heißt danken. <laughs> thinking is thinking. So some, some kind of anthropologist. And uh, <laughs> it's about, <laughs> it's about this ethnographic exploration of the everyday life of, of these women, whereas I'm focusing on these essays. So I thought a lot of difference. But then, when you begin reading closely, of course, as you suggested, the, the twin, <laughs> mental twin, there are also a lot of uh, similar interests and concerns. And so we have a shared interest in the voices that are marginal. Uh, in my case, I was focused on those who will not forgive, those who will not play the part assigned to them by, for example, Desmond Tutu in South Africa, or those who would not look ahead and build up a bright future in post-war Germany, those who would not in Rwanda comply with the presidential decree to go along with reconciliation and forgiveness. So my interest in the unforgiving and the resentful survivors matches somehow <laughs> in relation to the ability to speak and be acknowledged your interest in those without the briefing space in Palestine. We are also both interested in the limits of what you call standing language, local or global. You write, I'm interested here in the gap between the language of trauma and the women's experience and the political implications and nature of that gap. And I think that speaks also to a central interest 
in, in, in my work and in Holocaust studies and genocide studies more generally, this experience on the behalf of survivors and victims, that standing language cannot account for the experience. And in my case, again, thriving on other inspirations, I find inspiration, for example, in Theodore Adorno, who, who writes that philosophy after the Auschwitz has to explore the other side of the concept, <laughs> the negative, the other side that is often not explored. So we have a share, shared interest in, in the limits of language, which are contingent, not kind of principled. We also have a shared interest, I think, in, in notions of the ideal victim. You have to be a certain kind of victim in certain kinds of context to be listened to, to be heard, and to be responded to. So we have an interest in, in, in promoting the voices of those, as many other scholars, promoting the voices of those who are not easily heard, who are easily either silenced or who are speaking in ways that are really nasty to listen to, <laughs> but still we should perhaps listen. So that was simply to kind of maybe create the ground for, for, for more discussion between us. Questions and comments. First, uh, with regard to the concept of trauma, uh, the grief experienced by the bereaved women, you say, could be a matter of suffering beyond trauma. You could say they're not traumatized. You could insist, like Amarie writes in his essay, I am not traumatized. He insists that he is something different. And that could be one position. But the other position that I'm not entirely sure whether we should dismissed too quickly could be to expand the concept of trauma and to say, for example, that the event focus on much thinking about trauma is an insufficient understanding of the concept of trauma. So that's, that's the first. What, what really should we do with the concept of trauma? Add to it with another concept if we want to understand the broader realm of suffering or reform the concept. Endurance is a central concept and to endure you're also right, not everything can be endured, and I agree. But, but I still wonder whether I, I think to endure can mean many different things. It could mean to accept. It could mean to cope. It could mean to reconcile with. And uh, I, I just put this as a, a possible discussion. What exactly do you mean? And would it, would it be interesting to kind of cash out different understandings of endurance or what it means to endure? You also talk about this, I'm not sure whether I pronounce it correctly, sumut, sumut. And, and when, I, when I read this ethos of standing tall in the face of, uh, of suffering and grief, and I came to think about comparable traits and virtues at stake in other settings, Mehamed in Bosnia and Ubuntu in South Africa. And I wonder whether, whether it would be interesting, maybe it's not, <laughs> but it could be interesting, to, to ponder whether when we talk about these things, these good things, sumud is a good thing, whether we're talking about a trait or a virtue. And it might be both or it might be one or the other, but, but for example, in philosophy, there's a lot of thinking about tolerance and being able to tolerate. And in, in the philosophical context, you can go on then talking about tolerance as something that some people are good at. They're just good at it. <laughs> Or you can talk about tolerance as something that is a virtue, that comes with certain requirements and you, there are certain conditions and there are certain kinds of tolerance that are good and other kinds that are bad. So it belongs in a political virtue ethics discussion. 
and one could do that perhaps also with these other concepts. Okay. More generally, I think there's a, we have a shared interest in the relationship between anthropology and philosophy. And I, I just want to begin with the things you just mentioned, ethics. Um, in philosophy, of course, ethics is one of the basic disciplines. So, so it has been really interesting to notice this new embrace and interest in ethics in, in anthropology. And I would like to, we could discuss that a lot. <laughs> but I would just uh, say one, one thing that, interestingly, when you connect, when you say that you are especially interested in an ethics of the ordinary, and you distance yourself to the kinds of ethics that are concerned with principles and standards, we know, of course, that what you are distancing yourself to are the kind of uh, high school ethics uh, utilitarians always act so that you maximize the benefit for all people involved or whatever, or the Kantians uh, do act so that you can universalize mm -hmm. the maxim of your... You have all these ethics that are about uh, justifying a certain standard of how mm -hmm. to act and think. But, but the ethics of the ordinary, you could say that goes all the way, but you don't have to begin with ethics of care. <laughs> I will not tell the complete story. <laughs> but you could say that it begins with Plato. And it begins with the dialogues where Socrates walks around Athens and he talks with his fellow Athenians about what is virtue, what is courage, what is justice. And he walks around in the streets talking in the ordinary everyday setting about words that these fellow Athenians use in their everyday life. And of course, virtue ethics, as thought about by Aristotle, is also a lot about the particular, how to, to, to understand and deal with particular moral situations. So I'm just adding to, there's a lot we can do with, with ordinary ethics, uh, and it's very, a very long tradition. Another thing is that the, the use of philosophy. You use philosophy as I see Vinadas uses philosophy and I see DDF Sang using philosophy. So you talk about Deleuze on convergence, Austin on speech acts, Bergson on duration, Wittgenstein on forms of life, family resemblance, language, aspect blindness, inner outer, Cavell on everything. <laughs> and Vinadas uses the word evoking. And, and I, I think, in a way, you are evoking philosophy. All of you, not just you, but many, many anthropologists who, who practice the relationship to philosophy this way. And, and to me, it seems like the method, it's a methodological assumption that it is clear to the reader what this philosopher meant when he wrote that. But it's not. <laughs> when you evoke something, you appeal to a common experience with something. So I could evoke to all of you what it means to be at the beach on a warm summer day and the feeling of leaping into the water. I could evoke, I could show you a picture and we would have, could have a shared conversation about that. But evoking Heidegger and evoking Wittgenstein and Cavell to me is to kind of uh, to move too quickly. So I like your words about his, his, his hesitance in the beginning because I, I, I think anthropologists in general need to be more hesitant in their use of philosophy. And I think what, what lacks, I, I really love it, I like it, and you should do more. <laughs> but, but when you do it, I think you never evoke, always elaborate. So if you take a quote from Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein is so difficult and so unclear. And I'm not here to kind of come up as the expert saying, well, what I understand Wittgenstein <laughs> to say is this and this is well, not how you use it. So not at all. 
But, but just in general, as a methodological rule, if you want to be a philosophical eclectic, be a meticulous eclectic. And, and, so, so, and, and don't presume that the philosophical quote is clear. What did Heidegger mean when he said, Denken heißt Danken, or thinking is thinking? I'm not sure. <laughs> and and, and I, I think if we are to move ahead as philosophers and anthropologists in our collaboration about understanding, for example, suffering, we philosophers need to do much better when we address cases and context and ethnography. I'm, I'm, it's ridiculously saddening sometimes. But, but also anthropologists need to spend more time simply saying, well, I take this quote, this sentence from Wittgenstein, it's in a passage from the philosophical investigations, and there are kind of like 800 expert comments on that passage, and I have read 10 of them, and I think it means this and that, and then I allow you <laughs> to move on, <laughs> but not before. <laughs> I love this use of philosophy, but it should be more developed. And, and also because sometimes I think then you will realize that the philosophical quote or source does not explain the particular context better than you yourself. I think there are a couple of places where you write about a mother's tale about the death of mm -hmm. the son as a gift from God. Mm -hmm. I prefer Lotte to Cavell. I think Lotte says it better than Cavell. <laughs> and this is where, I, where, where we talk about your voice, mm -hmm. I think. So the philosophers take them down <laughs> from, from the throne and use them when they are helpful. So let me end there. Okay. Thank you, Thomas. Um, I do think that your questions are quite spot on, and I wish you would speak to a larger forum of anthropologists concerned with philosophy uh, or trying to use philosophy because I think it would suit us with a proper dialogue. Anyway, I think that um, I would be fairly open to rethink what the purchase of the notion of trauma might be for, now I'm jumping into disciplinary camp again, for anthropology. Um, but I want to, again, I do want to retain a certain hesitancy towards it, um, because one thing is the pathology of the concept. That it's inherent to it, it's built into it. And it, 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 it is used by people who have the power and the knowledge to diagnose and to act. And I do not see my role nor my competence to diagnose or to act, in fact, on what I see. Um, so that's why I'm not sure that it's useful. And the other thing is more conceptual, which is that it seems to me that when you write, read a text and people say, of course the people were traumatized or I'm working with traumatized people, then I think it closes down, or it can close down our imagination of what it's like because we know what trauma is. And I am not sure that what I know about very little about what trauma is supposed to be necessarily captures the lives that I claim to know at least a little bit. And so that is why I've tried not to, not to use it, in fact. Um, to take your uh, 
a question around um, endurance. What does it actually mean? What could we do with it? And could, would, it, uh, would it make sense to line out different forms of endurance um, to find out what it actually is? Um, I wanted to, to, or, or, uh, to, to collapse that question with uh, your question to the notion of sumut, whether it is a trait or virtue, because I think that the problem for me with the notion of endurance and also with Sumud is that these two in the context of Palestine are tied to political ideology. So in a sense, you can almost never know what it means because somewhat, someone and some very powerful people have already told you what it means to endure. But I do see that uh, an interesting response for an anthropologist would be to then line out, so what does it mean? I, I, I think there's actually a scholar who's done it, who has done it very nicely, and that is Lale Khalili, um, who's written extensively ab um, about it. And she also wrote about Sumud as, in a sense, that which captures the leftovers. And you could say, isn't it a polemic then between her and me? She doesn't know who I am. <laughs> Whether that is true or not, uh, but at, at least to me, I think it again, because it is it it is supposed to capture everything, it doesn't, because I'm I'm I would never be convinced that any term captures precisely <coughs> the way that people feel. I'm not saying, on the other hand, that it doesn't, or that that is not a possibility that it might. I'm just not sure. So I think, but I think you, I agree with you, there is a, there is a response um, to be made to how to work with endurance when it sits somewhere between being an ideology, a trait, or a virtue. Um, and again, then I would have to go back to my philosophy to know precisely also what is the difference between trait and virtue, because I'm not sure. I think that uh, my, my use of particular notions of ethics, while at the same time not going more into depth of where they're coming from, is also an, uh, and I know it, it can also be a defense mechanism. Uh, it, it's also because I don't think I would ever be able to say, so Socrates means this with ethics, Aristotle means this. Because I'm not, how, how could I know? How would I know? I'm not a philosopher. And I think you are very right that the use of evoke is something, it includes saying, I'm not sure I know, but let's try. But I, may, I also have to say I'm, I'm provoked mainly not by you, <laughs> not by a lot, but by the works, for example, of, uh, of Wiener Das and, and Didier Fessang. And I, I think some of these huge anthologies with 47 chapters on ethics and anthropology or moral anthropology include, I've just, if I remember correctly, it's like that there's talk about dialogue between mm -hmm. philosophy and anthropology, but it's almost only anthropologists who who contribute, and they contribute in this kind of 
impressionist, impressionistic, impre, uh, inspirational way, mm. which are in, I, I think is a great, great, valuable starting point. Yeah. It's the first wo word, it should not be the last. In a dialogue between anthropologists and philosophers, there's an accessible literature yeah. on Wittgenstein, for example, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that written by philosophers in philosophy journals and yeah. that are, I mean, readable even by anthropologists. So, so I think it, it, it could just be a more substantial discussion or use of the philosophical bit if you did that, read that extra literature. I think that's definitely a lesson and I think it, it's also when you do it, when you try to read Wittgenstein and then read Cavell and then read Diamond and then read Lochier, you actually get a sense of the nuances and the discussions around the concepts, which doesn't make it less valuable, but which actually enriches it also for anthropology. Yeah. It's a matter of the dose. Sometimes it's the time to simply evoke. Also with a quote at the beginning of your text or whatever. Other times it's, it's time to, to elaborate in carefully, you know, and never more than is just what is needed for your purpose. So, 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 so what I respond to, is, is a general tendency of evo evoking only mm. in anthropology. Yeah. And, and I would maybe distinguish between philosophy as a source and philosophy as a perspective. And, and, and philosophy as a source is if you think about something in particular, language, ethics, uh, the body, why, why be a disciplinarian to the extent that you say to yourself, I will only read books where the word anthropology is on the back cover, and I will not read Merleau-Ponty because he is a philosopher and I'm an anthropologist. That's the kind of insularity of thinking that is problematic, I think. One thing is philosophy as a source, among many other sources. Uh, and, and another thing is philosophy as a, as a discipline or as a perspective that is kind of, you, we can all participate. And so that's a matter about what you think is important to, to, to ponder and how you ponder it. So philosophers will tend to dwell for extended periods of time on concepts. And they will extend to, to, to elaborate on those concepts for a long, long time and elaborate on the elaboration of the concept. And they will dwell systematically on normative issues, and they will even maybe sometimes themselves argue for a certain normative position. And, and these, these tools of the discipline should sometimes be embraced by anthropologists, maybe in collaboration with a philosopher. Uh, as a philosopher, which certainly, I'm sure, I mean, there are so many philosophical works, on the other hand, where, where the, the, the example is this kind of dreamt up imaginary example of a trolley moving down a road or whatever, where I always argue that we should think on the basis of descriptions of actual cases. And there we could use ethnography or work with ethnographers. be only directed towards Lada because it, it was this this is a product of a conversation 
And, um, and so while everybody's having a think, maybe I can ask a question just to kick off, <laughs> kick off the discussion. And uh, it's, the, it's a predictable question, which is uh, going to be about women. And um, so, <laughs> so I think my question would be, um, and I was thinking a lot about it because even when you spoke, uh, you didn't talk about your ethnography very much, no. and about the context. And uh, you know, you said that you talked to, you know, you worked with the wives uh, of these detainees. So, um, so I was just wondering, like, you know, what is uh, what is the experiences of the wives of detainees, uh, which brings to the discussion on endurance? Because um, I, I get because I work with women, I get asked these kind of questions all the time. So I think my question would be like. Would the women endure differently than the men? Do the women grieve differently than the men? And do they mourn differently than the men? Because these seem to be like a, some of the key concepts that like you know weave your ethnography together. So what is it about your ethnography with women which brings to this discussion? Wow. <laughs> I, I'm. I wonder whether it is the particular group of women that I work with of whether it is the question that doing that posed to how we think about m different modes of grieving, of losing, and of expressing emotion uh, in Palestine. And I think it is actually more the latter. I think it's a prism that allows us to see that there's, that there's not only one way, one set way in which to grieve, but um, at the same time, I would also say yes. It is. I mean, it is different to grieve uh, according uh, according to gender. And um, when I say that, I'm not doing. I'm not trying to be a biological determinist here. I am doing it because of the way in which I think about subjectivity. And without going into affect theory, I, I do think that the ways in which we think and feel are deeply subjectivized by the people and the place with and modes of belonging in which we're part. And gender is a very important axis here. Also concretely, because whereas, um, as I said, a lot of women do a lot of... Um, impressive, notable, heroic political things in Palestine. They do. Um, they have this expression that I also say, they, women are sayal jabal, they're strong. Um, and uh, very powerful. But I'm not sure that having that position makes it any easier to grieve. Mm. Uh, because when you have that p particular kind of position, that also means that it evens even less allowed for you to actually perhaps take a pause and think, okay, I don't believe in this anymore um, than it is for my, my women, I said that, who, who don't really you know, make it to any kind of um, place where they're noticed. Yeah, thank you. This is along the same lines. I'm also interested in hearing more about your ethnography. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in emotion. You touched upon emotion in your discussion, the two of you, but this was more in a philosophical, theoretical way. And I'm interested in the experiential aspects of emotion, and especially during fieldwork. 
so basically, I think my question is: when you, uh, during fieldwork, confront these very strong emotions and mm. these um, strivings for endurance, what does that do to you as an ethnographer? And maybe we could ask the same for you, Thomas, because you're also, even though you are not doing fieldwork in the ethnographic sense, but you're also working with people who go through great suffering. So, what does that do to you uh, as a person? And what does what this does to you as a person, as in an experiential sense, what does that do to your scholarship for both of you? Do you want to start? Mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that it is um, a very crucial question, and it's one that I hope I dare to answer in the next book. Because I am trying, I'm only beginning also through my most recent work with the therapists and dignity to think about what does it actually mean to work in an environment where bearing, being with the pain of others is simply part of what you do. And I think about it as a, as a form of knowledge that I cannot unknow. And what I learned in Palestine and what I saw and witnessed or experienced myself is not something that's going to go away in my scholarship. It means that I'd be looking for, I think, similar or emotions or trying to avoid them. Because it's, I think I'm one of, I'm not particularly fond of field work. And I think that my history in Palestine is to do with that. It was not, it wasn't pleasant. Um, at all. It doesn't mean that people were not nice, gentle, fantastic, welcoming. They were. But, but being part of that um, we in which you do become part as an ethnographer in a sense of community around pain also, it, I think it, it does something to scholarship and it also does something. So that when I'm asked, so what do you say to this critique of the suffering slut? Then I say, well, just I can't, I can't spend my time on it, because if if I am not responding to what people in my field feel, who am I to be there as a scholar, and who am I to say that they are on the look for the good? Because who who knows what the good is in such a context? Um, so it has, I think it has marked me a lot, and also beyond my professional life. Yes. I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I guess being a philosopher and being a person sometimes overlap. <laughs> but I think it's, it's, it's a kind of a, a, a long story. Um, I think too maybe it's a part, part about uh, working with nasty emotions and part about the kind of world that the work with the nasty emotions makes you see. <laughs> and uh, I, I began working at this, the Danish Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies in 2001. And I think I spent the first year uh, talking with survivors and uh, traveling to East Poland, visiting camps and uh, reading Holocaust testimony and genocide testimony. And, uh, and I think it, it does affect you in certain senses of, uh, and it surprises you sometimes you are touched a bit, secondarily or tertiarily. It's it's not at all. I'm not playing 
trauma or secondary trauma, anything like that. But, but of course, you are, the idea of what is possible in the world, the degrees of immorality and evil and cruelty, <laughs> we are several, many of us sitting here work with that on a, a regular basis, and it changes our worldview. So as a person, it, it, it affects you to some degree. And then, then in, as, a, as, a, as an academic, <laughs> um, I, I think that it has affected my way of doing philosophy in, in the way that, for me, philosophy comes second. So my scholarship, insofar as there is some <laughs> in relation to mass atrocities, always begin uh, in history or law or anthropology, and then philosophy comes around. Uh, never as, almost never as the inspiration. So in that sense, it's kind of, no, it's maybe not the opposite. But in any ways, <laughs> philosophy comes around as a help to try to understand uh, the testimony or whatever it is. So I'm doing, you could say, bottom-up eccentric philosophy <laughs> uh, because something else has been put on the prime scene. Uh, and I'm inspired, I was inspired by that Along the way, again, for example, many, several years ago, there was some philosophers commenting upon the terror attack on a school in Beslan. There were these uh, bombs put up in, in the school. And, and kind of the media then asked the philosopher to answer the question, is this evil? And, and I think it's a temptation that should be resisted to answer in the, in, in the way that maybe philosophers are trained to answer. So you begin answering, arguing on the basis of your readings of Immanuel Kant and Leibniz and Theodicy and what have you. And you know little about what happened in Beslan. You know little about what motivated actually the people who put up the bombs. But still, you talk about it. If you want to speak about concrete acts and events of suffering and evil, uh, all you always have to spend more time than you want to. <laughs> to delve into the actual history and details of the actual affairs because you are talking about something that actually may affect people touched by the event. It's different because philosophers, we are not trained for, we, we don't have research ethics <laughs> because we are supposed only to, to read Immanuel Kant and Leibniz and they are dead <laughs> and they don't really care what we say about evil. So it has in that way affected also my way of doing philosophy. So on behalf of everyone who is present here today, we would like to thank the both of you. That was really interesting and very vibrant and very vital uh, yeah. to the discussion as well. So thanks a lot. This podcast is produced by the Anthropological Association of Denmark. Today you heard the recordings of the monographic Happy Hour with Lotte Buch Siegel and Thomas Brudholm discussing the insights of Lotte Buch's monograph called No Place for Grief, Marches, Prisoners and Mourning in Contemporary Palestine. The event was held on the 23rd of May 2018 in Ethnographic Exploratory at Copenhagen University. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Also, stay tuned for future events on the Association's Facebook page and gain more insights to the work of Anthropologening on our website at anthropologening.dk. Thank you for listening. Og til de danske lyttere, er du ikke allerede medlem af Anthropologeningen Danmark, så kan du blive det i dag ved at tilmelde dig foreningen på vores hjemmeside. Den finder du på www.anthropologeningen.dk. Tak fordi du lyttede med.